We are parents, teachers, and educators. And like you, we're passionate about restoring our culture for Christ. This is Veritas Vox, the voice of classical Christian education. Hello again, I'm Marlon Detweiler, and you've joined us for Veritas Vox, the voice of classical Christian education. Today we have with us Dr. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Welcome, Dr. Moeller. Marlon, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself personally? We always like to hear uh, that people with significant titles like you have actually have real pasts and real personal experiences. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I grew up as a little boy in Florida. Uh, there aren't that many Florida natives. And, I'm uh, in Florida right now. Where, what town? Lakeland, Florida. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Very good. That's not far from where we live, actually, in the wintertime. Yeah, well, uh, I thought that was just normal for all humanity, and uh, you know, just uh, running around in shorts uh, uh, in January. But uh, grew up in in the uh, that part of Florida when it was very much a settled community. It was it was more like Alabama than California, and uh, just a wonderful Christian family, uh, Christian parents, Christian grandparents. I could ride my bicycle back and forth between grandparents' house in Plant City, Florida. Um, it was idyllic uh, and Florida and uh, just very safe. And then an enormous amount of social transition came into Florida about the time I became a teenager, 12, 13 years old. And uh, the population exploded. You know, it, it, it quadrupled over a period of time. And uh, the biggest thing is, is there were big new ideas coming in. And I was in the public school system, which in Polk County, when I was in elementary school, was basically uh just fine it was uh, just a local elementary school that had been built in the 19th century and uh you know all the teachers were christians and it was a it was an intact society my dad was with public supermarkets for uh, for many years decades started in lakeland oh yeah and my dad started in store number 5 that tells you something yeah and uh he became a a, a senior manager in the, in the company and uh, went went down at store manager. He loved working in the stores, and he went down to South Florida, where Publix was expanding because the population was exploding. So I'm uh, 13 years old when we moved to South Florida, and I walked right into the educational liberal experiments of the 1970s. Oh wow! And uh, I mean, I walked into the school without walls. You know, uh, no more uh, sage on the stage. Now just a guide on the side. It was groovy. It was a disaster, and. Uh, so I walked into the idea of uh, uh, of the intersection of ideology and education as a 13-year-old. And I'll just tell you, I wasn't buying it, Marlon. <laughs> uh, it was a complete mess. Uh, I went into the uh, the school bathroom, uh, uh, you know, between two classes, and I smelled marijuana for the first time. <laughs> and uh, I, I just knew what it was because that's what it had to be. And so I walk out, I pass a teacher, and I said, Somebody smoking marijuana in the bathroom. And then I noticed uh, the person smoking marijuana in the bathroom was the teacher. Oh, my word. And he was my teacher. And he looked at me and he said, I got a room full of 13-year-olds. Got to do something to get through the day. And, you know, I just thought, well, you know, this is a new world. I just caught my teacher smoking in the bathroom. and uh, <laughs> But it was, it was the ideological stuff. I was this conservative Southern Baptist 13-year-old rule keeper. And... Uh, you know, it really threw me into a life project, Marlon. That's why I told it that way. It threw me into a, a, a world 
life project of trying to understand the worldview of the people around me and what in the world uh, was producing this kind of nonsense. And uh, I think that was central to my calling as a Christian theologian and scholar and uh, teacher and uh, leader of an institution of several thousand students and uh, someone who is, I've given my life to the intersection of Christianity and culture. Well, you have definitely done that, and I've watched your work, and I see that you're doing it with no apparent level of bashfulness. So, thank you for that. I, I don't think I don't think you can be bashful about this. I, no, you know, I, I I think we're living in one of those rare moments of a great cultural shift. The tectonic plates in the society are moving, and uh, you know, uh, this is just not a time for uh, for quietude. Right. I couldn't agree more. Well, you you've been uh, uh, you've really led into a good, uh, my next question here. As the president of the seminary, how long have you been in the position of leading the seminary? Well, you know, Marlon, I have to walk into some rooms where there's a portrait of me as president thirty years ago. All right? Oh boy! <laughs> so, it, okay. it, if you want to have the if you want to teach people uh, the Greek understanding of mutation, uh, just look at that. Look at that oil portrait and look at me. Uh, that's 30 years. Uh, I'm now in my 31st year as president. So, you know, I that's a, it's a, I spent a generation as president of this school. Yeah, I knew it was a long time, and that really is helpful. I, I'd like to hear you talk about what you've observed in seminary life and in students in particular then versus now. Yeah, well, you know, I think the first thing I would say is uh, radical change in the students. And uh, so the students who come to us now, both at Southern Seminary and Boyce College, and so you can say we have, you know, between 6,500, 7,000 students, uh, about 1,200 undergraduate students, and the rest are graduate students. Okay. Uh, at both levels, they are far more serious human beings uh, than was true 30 years ago. Uh, they are not brought here by, say, cultural Christianity, and uh, they're not trying to find themselves. Uh, they're young people. And you want young people to do all the things God wants young people to do at that stage in life. But they are far more serious than their parents were and uh, far more serious than uh, than any previous generation of students, in my experience. So they're coming in. They've already been fighting, you know, intellectual battles. They've already been fighting, uh, you know, I think, as the Apostle Paul talks about in terms of uh, spiritual warfare. And uh, they're very they're very they're very much uh, intellectually uh, curious they're serious students. They're fun. They're joyful to be around. Uh, they're not scared, but they are very serious and sober-minded. And uh, so that that's a that's a, a pretty significant distinction. They're also taught by teachers, and and this means uh, often before they come to us, they're taught by very serious teachers who understand what is at stake. I think that's also something new. So while we can talk about all kinds of horrible things that are happening, and they're all true. In the larger sphere, uh, when you ask uh, what kind of student comes to Boyce College or Southern Seminary, they're coming more serious, better prepared, more ser more spiritually uh, mature than in previous generations. And I would say otherwise, they wouldn't be coming. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Do you find at at Southern that you have that the typical, uh, and maybe it's an even mix, but the typical seminary student? has graduated from college some time ago, has worked for a bit, and is now moving into a ministry calling, or do they come right out of college typically? It's about half and half. It is about half and half. Uh, most of them are still pretty young. 
but it's about half and half. And, uh, you know, Marlon, I, I, from the very beginning of, of my uh, work in theological education, I have believed that it is uh, best to follow a classical structure in which you keep students in, uh, in study, if possible. So I really put an emphasis on getting 22-year-olds, 23-year-olds to come okay. to the campus, yeah. uh, young men called to pastor. Yeah. And it is because there are habits of study and there are habits of learning and uh, you know what the half-life of a of a, an academic uh, you know season is. Um, you you just bring more with you at twenty two or twenty three academically. Now you don't have as much with you in terms of life experience, right? That's and, a trade off, uh, sure. It is a trade off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting, and it's it's it very encouraging to hear uh, the seriousness. I, I consider that to be an optimistic outlook in a yeah. way that's really really encouraging. There's been some talk recently uh, that seminaries are moving towards lessening standards, uh, especially as it relates to biblical languages, uh, Greek and Hebrew in particular. Right. What What's going on at Southern and what is your thinking? What's your part of that conversation? Well, we still require both Greek and Hebrew of all Master of Divinity students. Uh, we think anyone who's going to be a pastor ought to have that uh, that background in the original languages. And as you know, and you kind of premised your life work on this, um, language study is more than the study of a language. It is a mental discipline that introduces you into a world. And so I try to tell students, like, it's not just how to understand a Hebrew sentence or a Greek sentence. It's how to understand the Hebrew mind and the Greek mind. And you'll never do that if you can't enter into the language, uh, understand the, uh, the, the the language world. Now, I'll be honest, uh, like everyone else, we're in a situation in which some decisions are made outside of us, uh, you know, extraneous to us. Uh, so what we decide in terms of the curriculum can be undecided by what you just might call the market, you know, in other words, where where students are, and by pastors who are encouraging students and directing students. Mm -hmm. And um, so we're, we're going to have to fight this. Uh, but but this is true for a long time. I mean, this, is, this was a 19th century problem. So this is not a new problem. Okay. The, uh, yeah, it's, Oh, I I think it it's so hard for us to realize the benefit of something when we're swimming in its water. <laughs> right. You know, right. how does Greek benefit me? Well, it's hard. It's hard to give a, a, a good answer to that if you're on the inside of it. And it's also hard right. if you're on the outside of it. And I think the idea of being uh, imbibing all of the culture and, and having a sense of the world into which Christ was born. Right. Right. Is is. Uh, uh, a way that uh, sometimes makes sense uh, for people. Um, what else do you see? Well, and and you probably know. Excuse me, I just started to say you probably know that th those are two different challenges with Greek and Hebrew. Yeah. No, so you know, kind of speaking to, uh, I think where a lot of your schools and teachers and and parents are. Uh, if I have to prioritize one or the other, I'm going to prioritize Greek. Yes. Uh, because Greek comes with the added benefits of, uh, you know, quite frankly, tying into Western civilization. And uh, especially if you combine it with Latin, uh, that's an incredible uh, power of, uh, of, of, of language and knowledge and, yeah. and a set of mental skills that comes. Yeah. Hebrew yeah, I, is more difficult. Yeah. He, we, boy, I'll tell you, we, we were, we, I don't know the, 
the number of students or sections between the two, but Greek overwhelms between yeah. Greek and Hebrew. Of course, Latin is very important to us as well for uh, similar reasons to Greek. Um, but language mastery and the whole idea of uh, a real depth in being able to communicate is right. one of the many benefits. You've um, What else do you see? What does the horizon look like for the seminary uh, as it prepares the next generation of church leaders? Yeah, well, I've dedicated my life to this. I, I firmly believe that the seminary is the right answer to the question, you know, how are pastors in any significant numbers uh, going to be trained for faithfulness and ministry? And, uh, you know, the seminary world is collapsing. That's that, that, that is not a word of prophecy. That is that's just a, an honest word. And, uh, you know, Marlon, a lot of that's just because so many churches and denominations are collapsing. Yeah. And so, you know, no surprise, uh, you know, the Harvard Divinity School is not turning out many preachers. You know, if you're shocked by that, you're about a century late. Uh, And then you look at all these other seminaries that are basically going by the side. So the seminaries that are surviving and thriving are very conservative, evangelical, Protestant seminaries. And so and but only about a handful of those, only about six of those. So I'll tell you, when I came to this institution as president 30 years ago, I actually told my trustees, I said, you know, our goal is to be the very finest seminary on planet Earth. It's also to be the apex predator. Uh, because uh, th- this is this is a very contested territory. We have to fight for why uh, th- those who would preach and teach the word of God need this quality of education and need it in a confessional setting with uh, very clear theological commitments and and need to spend the time necessary to gain the requisite skills. We're going to have to fight for this. And, you know, we have fought for it. We've tripled the enrollment of the Master of right. and, and, and the doctorates here yeah. uh, over the process of years. But it, it's an ongoing battle because, you know, uh, in the free church tradition, we can't mandate theological education. And even in the denominations that do mandate theological education, almost all of them have defined downward the amount of theological education or the content of the theological education that they require. I think that's a bad move, but you know that means we have to be persuasive, but the fact we have to be persuasive means we have to be really good. So that's not a bad context. No, things that cause us to keep our pencil sharp and and really uh, keep our game uh, are not bad things. Uh, We could all stand to have those in our lives. I think it's especially true for schools. I think schools really need to have to be good to survive. Uh, because otherwise, you know, school is one of those things that can fall into entropy pretty quickly. And, uh, that, that, that's, that's bad. Uh, you know, I, I, I love the fact we have to earn the, the credibility of 18 year olds and 22 year olds every year. Uh, they, uh, they can, uh, present their own challenges to earn it too, which is a good thing. Well, they do know what they're looking for. And then we tell them they're looking for more than they think. Uh, but we make sure that it's more than they expected, not less. Yeah, that that I I love that. You've spent a lot of time uh, as an author as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, how many books have you written? Oh my goodness, uh, twelve, thirteen, something like that. Okay. Yeah, good for you. What would you consider to be the most? Im- well, let me let me back up. Let me hold that question for just a moment. Mm-hmm. What? causes you to write a book well look at this picture uh, <laughs> I, uh i'm in my personal library 
uh, I am the creature of books. Uh, my, my parents taught me to read and taught me to love books. My uh, grandmother was a, a school teacher who taught me to love books. I world I worked my way into a world of books as a very young boy, and I never wanted to work my way out of it. I worked my way through it, and so uh, I have come to know some of the most incredible people on planet Earth. Uh, the Lord has given me the opportunity to spend time with presidents and prime ministers, and uh, and yet the most lasting learning has come to me through books. And uh, that's just the way I think my mind works. I think it's the way most minds work. Uh, I also write books because I want to enter into other minds. I want to influence others. I want to seduce some people into an area of learning. I want to uh, prepare Christians for thinking through some issues. I want to help people to understand the times. I uh, I mean, some of my books are biblical exposition. Some of my books are cultural analysis. Uh, Some are theological exposition as well. And uh, it's because I th- I want to model and and frankly work out my own calling, and uh, you know I I write books that I think would have been helpful to me. Okay. Uh, and as a leader, there I, I I want to lead with conviction. I want to lead with ideas. I, I I you know success for me in leadership is not moving one pile of bricks to a, a another place. It's uh, changing minds, uh, which I I, I hope uh, are uh, minds more and more aligned with Christ. And so writing books is very much a part of that. And, uh, you know, I also think the Imago Dei is more about reading than uh, than we might know. It's certainly about words. You know, as, as, the, as the Bible begins and God creates Adam and Eve in his image, he speaks to them. And uh, so the language becomes very, very important. And then very quickly, God's people need written scripture and God provides that. And uh, I think I think that uh, just a part of the structure of how he made our brains is that we need to learn a lot by reading. We learn a lot by other means, but reading is, I think, is the central conduit by which most propositional and reflective uh, uh, material gets into the human mind uh, most effectively. Yeah, I I wouldn't. uh, uh, Well, you would expect me to agree with that for what I do for a living. Yeah. Uh, what was what would you uh, call? What would you label as your most effective book, and why? You know, the very first book I wrote is a very small book entitled "Culture Shift," but it was an urgent book because I was trying to help Christians to understand that uh, number one, most Christians don't think about the culture; they think about parts of the culture, but yeah. they don't think about the culture as this omnibus of a reality. Yeah. That uh, that Christians have to think about, or should be thinking about, all the time, and and intentionally, and and structurally, and in a disciplined way, biblically. Yeah. And uh, I, I I think my reading of church history is that Christians don't give you know this kind of serious thought to the culture until we have to. And uh, you know, there are turning points in history. There's shifts in history when Christians think, okay, we got to think about this. We got to think about this a lot. Uh, can we serve in Caesar's army? Yes. Can we bend the knee to Caesar? No. Uh, well, yeah. How do you train a 15-year-old boy to walk through the streets of Rome uh, to go and pick up something for the family and come back knowing what he's going to pass? You know, how, how, do you, how do you negotiate that? Um, what does it mean that Paul wrote his, the predominant number of his letters uh, to the metropolitan cities of the Roman Empire, uh, to the Christians who were there? What, what does that tell us? Um, in the Reformation, in the medieval period, 
in the synthesis uh, between uh, the secular and the sacred, uh, between faith and reason in the medieval period, and then the breaking apart of all this in the modern world. Those those tectonic plates shifting turn out to be really crucial times. And my argument in that first book, Culture Book, uh, Culture Shift, uh, is that we're living through one of those. And Christians better be aware. This is not just a, a process of cultural change. We're experiencing a shift from one culture to another. Yeah. And it, so that was that first book. Yeah. It, uh, well, I was just going to make the comment. It is so hard to make observations about the fishbowl that we live in. Yeah. When it's it's the water that we swim in, and we don't have the outside context, which is the value of study, the right. value of understanding. What what thoughts do you have from re- having written that book and other books uh, on uh, culture, the Gathering Storm being one of them, for how we better assess the time in which we live? I've had a conversation with one of my yeah. children, for example, who who made a comment once, uh, and I challenged him on it that thought today is really no different than 40 years ago when I was his age or 35 years ago, that it's just a matter of another step. And I wanted to say, no, I don't think so. How do we, how do we, how do we better assess our world in the context of all of history and, and that which ought to be? Yeah, I tell people they need to think of culture not as a a, a a movie that just keeps playing, but they need to think of it like a a, a seesaw in a playground. Um, there is a, a point at which when civilizational change is, is happening, you know, you're going uphill. Uh, but then there's a point at which the thing teeters and goes the other way. And, you know, then it's it's equally hard to go the other direction or to hold to what w- w- was in the on the other side of the fulcrum. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because one of the best ways to teach physics is to put two kids on a on, on a, a seesaw. Um, there, there, there are very few models of any society that has tipped in one direction that has ever been pulled back any significant amount. And I say that because I've devoted my life to studying cultures and civilizations, and uh, there just are, are very few models. And so you end up with, and and in the modern age, this is how you end up with conservatism. This is how you end up with uh, the right, so to speak. It's the people who say, look, the direction of this change, at least a lot of this change, is not healthy. And 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 that's why you know, you know Christians and others who are true conservatives in this sense and holding to any kind of classical continuing uh, patterns of life and, and eternal truths and uh, uh, verities, uh, we are now on the defensive, and uh, it's because the again the incline is now in in a in a direction which all the energy is running away from us. And so one of the things I try to help uh, both in culture shift and in the gathering storm, for example, is to say and in the gathering storm far more recently kind of 20 years later is here's what that acceleration looks like yeah so uh last night uh marlon i I was uh looking for something in my study and i found something else and that happens all the time and i i found a book a lot longer to get it done then doesn't it (laughs) it it, well you know it's an occupational hazard you surround yourself with uh tens of thousands of books you know you got tens of thousands (laughs) of friends and every once in a while one cries out to you you don't expect and uh so last night I found a book that was a symposium uh, undertaken by conservative Catholics and uh, evangelical Christians 
uh, back in the early 1980s. And so, you know, some people that you would recognize immediately uh, from that era. And here's, I remember here, it well, and RC speaking into it. <laughs> yeah, I don't even remember the name, William Bentley Ball. Uh, you know, he was a Catholic attorney. And uh, then you had Chuck Colson, and yet, you know, this, this is it, just, just other people. And anyway, here's the thing. None of them saw the trans thing coming, not one of them. Not, not, well, they're laying out all the challenges. You know what? They use the words boy and girl, man and woman, with absolute lack of irony. And you look at that and you go, okay, I was an adult. I was a married man then. And so when people say we're living in the same society, just no, no, we're, we are, we're inhabiting terra incognita. And uh, I, I don't mean to give a whole lecture here, Marlon, but th- this is not just one more step in one direction. Th- this is a, this is a, a coerced, ideologically driven reformulation of the most basic understanding of what it means to be human. Yeah. That doesn't happen every decade. No. Thanks be to God, by the yeah. way. Yeah, and and here we are faced with opportunity to uh, live yeah. it and deal with it, which is, right. uh, well, that kind of leads me to my last uh, mm-hmm. set of questions. You've been exposed to the movement of classical Christian education, uh, having yeah. spoken at the ACCS, the Association of Classical Christian Schools Conference. Yeah. What did you observe? What have you observed in, uh, in, in uh, seeing that? Uh, from a distance and from a, a standpoint of uh, being a step removed from it. Well, I'm kind of a step removed from it, but I'm not many steps removed from it. Well, uh, you I know, mean I'm, K-12 in yeah. particular in, yeah. in that yeah. sense. I don't mean that you're removed from uh, the idea of classical education. So, yeah, please understand that's what I mean. No, I, I, I just want to say, look, I want to be as engaged as possible by turning out as many teachers from Boyce College and as many scholars in both the, the college and the seminary to help the movement of classical school education. I don't point to many hopeful institutional developments, Marlon, uh, over the course of the last, say, 30 years. Uh, I think classical, Christian classical schools are at the very top of that list. So hear me. uh, And look, I I put my money where my mouth is, so to speak. Uh, The investment of this institution and um, my personal encouragement as much as is possible. And uh, also, I mean, Mary and I have three grandchildren. Two of them are school age, and they have been every single school moment of their lives a part of Potomac Classical School, you know, in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. Wonderful. And uh, we exult in that. And uh, so, in other words, we we put our grandchildren where our commitments are. Obviously, their parents are the ones who made that decision, but the, but their their parents, our our uh, daughter and son in law, are completely committed, and. Uh, and are deeply invested and and uh, and themselves understand exactly what it is at stake. What difference has the, the, the classical education uh, renaissance, the resurgence of it, uh, has been around long enough now for it to have been the education of students that you've gotten at yeah. uh, college and certainly and also at the seminary? Right. How would you describe the value of that education for them uh, in comparison to alternatives? They know a little something. <laughs> Is that a good thing? <laughs> knowledge can be corrupting. Uh, knowledge be corrupting. But on the other hand, uh, Deuteronomy 6 tells us the first responsibility of, of parents uh, in the economy of God's people uh, is to teach our children. Uh, when we sit by the door and when we walk through the way and are rising up and are sitting down, I mean, that, that, that this is it. This is the entire enterprise, which is why where you find Christianity, you find 
schools and always have from the beginning. But I know why you're asking this. It's not just it's not just knowledge. It's it's also wisdom. It's it's knowing how to connect the dots. But you know, the older I get, the more I think I am uh, with the classical Christian educators. And by that, I didn't mean that as a brand, just in terms of the the classical stream of Christian right. educators. And that is unapologetically putting facts and data into minds and then working at connecting the dots. I think one of the stupidest things in the educational liberalism of the 70s was they tried to connect dots with it. There were no dots. <laughs> and and so, so well put. That is yeah. so well put. I, I love it that we've got, you know, a five-year-old grandson who, you know, is 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 learning things. He doesn't have a clue how it connects to anything. But, you know, that young little mind and his his eight-year-old brother who's, you know, we, we've walked through, you know, the entire timeline they memorize in terms of, of, of human history, you know, we, we uh, you know, memorizing language blocks and, and literature, uh, you know, they don't know how these things connect yet, but in their hearts and in their minds, structures are being built. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then they're surrounded by biblical truth. They're in a gospel church. Uh, they're in Washington, D.C., where the word of God is being just pumped into them. They have godly parents who are raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and uh, and incredible parents uh, who have experience as uh, diplomats uh, for the United States government and, and senior staff in the United States government. And they're surrounded by very powerful people. Uh, they're at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, you know. But they know them as brothers and sisters in Christ, and they know them as those who prize learning and faithfulness. And uh, it's just the sweetest thing. I, I I am not just because of pragmatic reasons, but in deep principled reasons. I'm about the biggest fan of classical Christian education you could find. Yeah. That kind of perspective, honestly, is what gets me up in the morning. And it is mm. exciting to see the hope that comes out of classically educated kids, classical schools, and the mm -hmm. things that are going on. You, you have been wonderful to talk to. Your energy is contagious, and I don't want to keep you uh, any longer than uh, uh, you agreed to. You have been uh, a wonderful guest. Thank you, Dr. Muller. Well, Marlon, it's great to talk with you, and uh, you know anything we can do to help you, of all people, you know where we are. I do know where you are. Folks, you have joined us uh, for ver another episode of Veritas Vox, the voice of classical Christian education with Dr. Albert Moeller. Thank you so much again.